Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, God's Attitude Towards Sin. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. We're going to start dealing tonight with God's attitude towards sin. And the reason that this is so important, because we've ministered about how God loves us, and people, we can receive this momentarily. When you got born again, you received the fact that God loved you. That's the only reason you got born again. Did you know it? It was the love of God that led you to salvation. You had to believe in the love of God or you couldn't have believed for your sins to have been forgiven. So we receive the love of God, but the problem is you've got to maintain the love of God. You've got to continue to walk what many people today term a love walk. You've got to abide in this love to see the lasting results of it. And the reason that we've had so much trouble abiding in the love of God is because of the religious indoctrination and bondage that has been ministered towards us. And the religious teaching is what has destroyed love. And as we talked about last night in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can accept that, but somehow or other it's been turned around to where most people believe that now that I am born again, God's stricter on me, harder on me, less forgiving than he was when I came as a sinner. But the Bible says just the opposite. Verse 9 says, much more now being justified by grace, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If you could accept the fact God loved you while you were a sinner, much more now that you're a born-again believer, should you be able to walk in the love of God? I don't care if you are blowing it. But see, because we haven't understood that, then we come under condemnation. The word condemnation, we'll be talking about that tonight. It means to declare unfit for use. Like if, you, if the city condemned this building, they'd say it's unfit for use. It is not fit to be used. Well, that's what the devil's all the time telling you. You don't deserve this. You don't deserve the blessing of God. What makes you think God would use you? If I was to ask most of you in this place, if somebody can't, like say, for instance, this brother that, you know, died last Monday night or Sunday night and came back to life during our meeting here. If any of you missed that, you missed the blessing. Amen. <laughs> I guess he died. He left his body. I presume that's, that's what the Bible says, is died. He came back to life. Well, if you'd have been the one to call on to go out in the hall and pray for him, what would be your reaction? Most people, most people in here would believe, oh, brother, I believe God can do it. Amen. You shout amen, stomp your foot, clap your hands, run up and down the aisle. And I say, praise God, you believe God can do it. You go out and pray for him. I don't know. And you'd immediately, see, begin to look at yourself. And although you don't have any problem believing God can do it, the problem is, am I, will God do it through me? Why do you have those reservations? Because of condemnation, feeling unfit for use. What makes you unfit for use? Well, we've all heard it ground into us from the time we were a child. Like Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, My ear is not heavy, that it cannot hear, nor my arm short, that it cannot say, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Man, we've had sin preached to us from every angle, up and down and around, and we are so sin conscious that we have become unworthy conscious. We have become self-conscious and we are continually burdened down by our, our awareness of our shortcomings and things like this. And that is the thing that Satan uses to condemn you and make you feel unfit that God's going to use you. You say, but brother, isn't that correct? God's not going to use a dirty vessel. Well, I tell you what, if God isn't going to use a dirty vessel, what's he going to use? There's not anything else that's available to him. God doesn't have anything else to use but unworthy people as far as the natural goes. In the spirit realm, I am not unworthy. I'm the righteousness of God. But there's always going to be physical problems and physical inadequacies as long as you're in this physical body. 
Even Paul said, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I press on towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.13. Paul hadn't attained yet. Paul was still pressing for the mark. Brothers and sisters, you hadn't attained yet. And you know what you ought to do when your adversary comes at you and says, you unworthy thing. You ought to agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way and say, you got me. Amen. Guilty. And I just received my freedom and pardon through Jesus, and I'll get it through who Jesus is, praise God. And put your faith in Jesus. But most of us get right over there. The devil says, you aren't worthy. Oh, yes, I am. I've been praying, and bless God, I've gone to church, and I gave $10 over my tithe last week. And I've been doing this, and I've been doing that, and I deserve it. Well, if you get over in the area of trying to justify yourself, you're hurting for certain. Many people, well, brother, I believe that you've got to have a certain standard of holiness. Maybe you can't live perfect, but you've got to do certain things. That's not consistent with the Scripture. The Bible says out of James chapter 2, verse 10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you do no murder, but yet if you steal, you become guilty of murder. It's just, I've used this example, I'm sure some of you heard me use it, but it's like a big old plate glass window. You can shoot a BB through a plate glass window, or you could run a grand piano through it. Doesn't matter the size of the hole that you make. Plate glass windows cannot be patched. They have to be replaced, amen. You can't patch a hole that size. You'll have to replace the whole thing. God's standard is perfection. And if you aren't perfect, it just doesn't matter what size infraction you've made. Man categorizes sin and says this is big sins. Big sins you can't get by with. But little sins you can. Amen. Oh, this brother committed adultery. You can't tell me God's going to use a drunk to get up there. Well, you might not let a drunk up there, but you might let somebody's 500 pounds overweight up there and not think a thing about it. What's the difference? Amen or oh me? Now, don't you go getting condemned. And don't you go to getting upset with me. People say, why do you pick on fat people? I'm not picking on them. I've got some spares right here that I'm trying to shed, amen. I'm not perfect. I'm not condemned about it, though, amen, but I'm also not foolish enough to think God wants me to stay that way. A lot of people don't think a thing, you know, about sitting there watching a boob tube and watching murder and adultery and fornication on the boob tube, but they wouldn't dare go out to a strip tease joint. You can see anything that you want on TV. What's the difference? There's a lot of people, brother, I wouldn't be caught dead going into church drunk or would smell a cigarette on my breath. But they'll come in and work, oh, I'm scared half to death. They'll go to sinning with their mouth, confessing things. I'm not saying any of these things to condemn you, but I'm saying God considers missing the mark, missing the mark. Man puts sin into categories and says, this one's bad. God sees them all the same. If you keep the whole law and offend in one point, you become guilty of all. Now, if you use God's standard, you had best change your thinking about sin. Because... Many people say, well, God couldn't use somebody that's living in sin. Well, are you perfect? Are you loving exactly the way that you should? Are you giving due benevolence unto your wife? Is everything perfect? Well, it's not perfect, but you see, here you go putting sins in category. I'm not doing the bad ones. No, if you look at it through God's standard, brothers and sisters, he hadn't got, any, he hadn't got anybody but unqualified people to use. Amen? That's all he's got to work with. And God certainly will flow through somebody that isn't perfect yet. He doesn't have any option. He used a donkey one time, and that donkey wasn't spiritual. Amen. <laughs> it hadn't been reading its Bible or praying or nothing like that. 
point I'm saying is we've had sin preached to us, and boy, we have put people under condemnation, not necessarily the way we deal with other people, but the way we deal with ourselves. Man, you don't forgive yourself. God's forgiven you, but you don't deal, forgive yourself. We need to see that God's attitude towards sin is different than what has been ministered to us. Now, to do this, you're going to have to see a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I have not got time to go into this because I can minister five or six times on the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I'm going to have to real quickly say this. Under the Old Covenant, God's wrath against sin was revealed. And many people, you see, they are carrying the same things that were spoken under the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, and they're trying to operate the same. But brothers and sisters, God never wanted to reveal His wrath against sin. That was not God's best plan, and it was only a temporary thing until faith should come. And many of you aren't aware of that, but let's look at some scripture on this, and we'll try and cover it real quick out of Romans chapter 5. In verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. He's talking about through Adam, sin entered into the world, and God created man to reproduce in his own likeness, and after his own image, after he became dead spiritually, he reproduced spiritual death. Sin entered into every man upon the face of the earth through that one sin. Verse 13, it, this is a parenthetical phrase. It goes down through verse 17. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Until the law means until the days of Moses, when God gave the Ten Commandments, the ordinances, and all of these things that became part of what most people consider the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is not just the law. There's lots of faith. There's lots of good things in it. But most of the Old Covenant is revealing, or much of the Old Covenant is revealing law. And it says that until the law was given, Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Well, we are not under the law, but under grace. Romans six fourteen says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. I'm not under the law, brothers and sisters. Brother, I believe you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. I believe you've got to do all these things. Well, you better not believe it, because if you, if you did, did you know every one of those commandments had a punishment that came along with it? You're supposed to be stoned. If you believe in the Ten Commandments and if you've got to keep them, you might as well line up and let us stone you to death because every last one of you deserve it. Now, that's the truth. You may try and justify yourself, but if you're going to be strict with it, that's the truth. God never gave the law to produce salvation that if you keep it, you would enter in because nobody could do it. Nobody under the Old Covenant got got saved by keeping the law. Nobody can keep the law. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody has ever kept the law except one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. What was the purpose of the law then? Galatians 3 asked that same question. Why, what then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promises were made, and before faith came we were shut up unto faith, which should afterwards be revealed. The law was given to restrain sin. To show you God's righteous standard. In other words, people, see, they still do the same thing today. Fifty years ago, divorce was looked at as being something bad. Today, people look around and they say, well, everybody does it. Religious leaders do it. You know, that's, we've changed. They compare themselves among themselves, which isn't wise, brothers and sisters, and they've deadened themselves to God's perfect standard. Well, back before the law was given, people were looking around saying, well, everybody's doing this. Lamech started having two wives, so everybody started having two wives. They started having as many wives as they wanted. They started doing this. They started doing that. So God revealed his righteous standard to kill, to give 
uh, a condemnation to people to make you unworthy, to show you your sin. It was to show you your sin. Romans chapter 3, I'm quoting a lot of scriptures because I had not got time to turn to all these, but Romans chapter 3, verse 18 and 19 says, So by the law is the knowledge of sin. No flesh is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law was given to give you a knowledge of sin so you could turn from it, not so that you could be saved by that law. The law, nobody can get saved by it. If they could have, Jesus wouldn't have come. The Bible says if there had been a law given which could have given life, then verily righteousness would have been by the law, Hebrews chapter 8. But Jesus had to come because the law could not produce salvation. Galatians 3 says it was a temporary thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says it was a ministration of death, and it is now superseded according to Hebrews chapter 8. It has passed away according to Hebrews chapter 9. Well, if you hadn't understood those things, you need to get that worked out. I've said a mouthful. But there is a difference between the Old Covenant and a New Covenant. The law never was given to perfect anybody. It was giving, uh, given until faith should come. After that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We aren't under the law. Sin isn't imputed where there is no law. So this is saying that before the law was given, God did not impute sin to man from the time of Adam until the time of Moses. What does the word impute mean? The word impute means to lay to their account. God dealt with sin differently before the time of Adam until the time of Moses than he did after the time of Moses when the law was given. How differently? I don't completely understand this. I can't answer all of these questions. I'm just laying some groundwork. For instance, if you'll read over there in 1 Peter, chapter, excuse me, 2 Peter, I believe it is, chapter 2 and chapter 3, it talks about that the Lord, when he died, he went into the lower parts of the earth and preached to the spirits which were in prison, which once were disobedient in the days of Noah when the long-suffering of God was upon those people. I don't understand exactly what that means. At face value, it looks like Jesus went and talked to the people that lived from the time of Adam until the time of Moses and gave them the gospel because he had not revealed himself from heaven and given any plans of salvation, and so he gave them like some people would consider a second chance. That's what it looks like. I'm not uh, advocating that or disavowing it. I don't completely understand it, but the Bible does say that there was a difference from the time of Adam till the time of Moses when the law was given. And then in the next verse it says, Nevertheless, even though God wasn't imputing his sin unto them, nevertheless, death reigned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Adam's transgression, and you notice it didn't say Eve's transgression. The Bible shows us, 1 Timothy chapter 2, that Eve was deceived. She was deceived, but it says the man was not deceived. He was in the transgression. Adam was not deceived. Adam had a command given to him, you shall not eat of this tree. It was a direct verbal command. He directly disobeyed it. Until the time of Moses, there was not those verbal direct commands given unto man. So mankind was not committing the same similitude of sin that Adam did directly. Now they were sinning, but they were not sinning in exactly the same fashion because there was no law given. Can you all see that? And so... God was not imputing their sins unto them. This does not mean that they all went to heaven. Everybody understand this? 
When it's talking about imputing their sins unto them, I, again, I can't say that I know totally what that is, but God did deal with sin before the time of Adam. Like, we'll talk about Cain in a minute. We'll talk about Lamech. We'll talk about some others. God dealt with them, but God wasn't holding it against them in the same fashion as what we see through the rest of the Old Covenant after the law was given. What most of us consider the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against sin was not the way that it was from the time of Adam until the time of Moses. But nevertheless, death was reigning. Why? To understand what we're talking about tonight, you've got to understand sin had a twofold effect. Sin not only broke fellowship with God, but sin put you in slavery to the devil. Romans chapter 6, verse 16, and although this wasn't written, it was a, it, the Word of God's been finished from before the foundation of the world. It was a principle and it was true. Romans 6, 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So sin had a twofold effect. It not only broke fellowship with God, but it put us in bondage and slavery to the devil. Now God was withholding his part of that. God didn't immediately break fellowship with man, contrary to what people think. God was withholding his judgment and his reaction to sin because he loved man. He was trying to draw them back unto him, provide salvation. But nevertheless, death was reigning because there was a second aspect of sin, that to whom you yield yourself, servants to obey, his servants you are. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, Satan, or the thief, comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Because man had submitted themselves unto Satan through sin and because they continued to live in sin, Satan was killing and destroying man. Death was reigning. But it wasn't God that was imposing it. Everybody see that? God didn't want to judge sin. God did not want to bring the law and wrath into the earth. And there's many scriptures in the Word that says that. Well, then why did he do it? He did it as a restraint upon sin. And you look at it this way. From the time of Adam till the time of Noah was a little less than 2,000 years. And in 2,000 years, things went from perfection to a state that the Bible says it is just now beginning to approach back unto as it was in the days of Noah. It has been approximately 6,000 years since that time, 5,000 years, something like that. And in 5,000 years, it's just beginning to approach unto the place where it was after less than 2,000 years after the fall. And this is sinless man coming. Just think, Adam lived 930 of those 2,000 years, the man who was sinless was still in the earth, releasing much of God's knowledge into the earth, and things still progressed that bad. Why? Because there was no restraint upon sin. After the law came, guess what? It has slowed the growth of sin down tremendously. And that's the reason God gave it as a restraint upon sin. But that never was God's perfect fashion. And the point that I'm making is that now we've received salvation. God has once again got back to the way he intended to deal with man and not impute your sins against you. Most Christians have not seen this, and they're living under an old covenant that never was meant to be a way that you were supposed to live by. It never was supposed to be the way that you base your fellowship and relationship with God on. The old covenant was only given to show a person how sad you were so that instead of trusting in yourself, you'd throw yourself on the mercy of God. That was the only purpose of that old covenant and all that legalism was to show you how rotten you were so that you wouldn't trust in yourself, you'd trust in Jesus. After you trust in Jesus, you're supposed to get out from under that law, amen. Most Christians hadn't made it. Let's look over here in the book of Genesis. And in chapter 3, we'll see the way that God started dealing with sin. In Genesis chapter 3, we find where Adam and Eve committed sin against God. The Lord did not tell man that he was naked. Man gained the knowledge of good and evil. 
and man began to condemn himself. What happened? He immediately ran from God, not to him. Every time, unless a man is renewed through the knowledge of the Word of God and there's sin entering into their life, they'll run from God, not to him. That's the reason that you see people in the church when they blow it, when they really make a mistake, most of them, if they aren't walking in the Word of God and if they hadn't been taught the Word of God, they'll run from God instead of to him they'll immediately begin to quit coming to church. And you can say, I wonder what's happened. The reason they do that is because you represent God. When you come together, you talk about God, and they start running away. It's the exact same thing. But did you know God, he clothed them better than they could clothe themselves. They made, uh, what was it, fig leaves, sewed them together. He made them coats of skin. A blood sacrifice was made for it. The Lord clothed them. God would have taken care of them. God didn't upbraid them. Now, there was some judgment upon sin, but not the judgment upon sin that most people have imagined. He told them that she would be multiplied, her sorrow and her conception. Adam would have to work by the sweat of his brow and earn his living like this. But most of us think that God got mad with man. God could not abide sinful man in his presence, and God kicked him out and quit fellowshipping with man, and man was stuck. God didn't do that. God did drive Adam out of the garden, but the purpose was not because he couldn't abide him and he wouldn't fellowship with him and walk with him anymore. He did it. It says down here in the third chapter, verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God, therefore, therefore, the word therefore means when you see the word therefore, look and see what it's there for, amen. That means it applies back to what was just said. Therefore, this is the reason the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground. The reason God sent him forth was so that man would not take of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. God did not want us living forever in this sinful body. He knew that there was going to have to be a new body that this corruptible was going to have to put on incorruption. He had the plan of redemption right here in the third chapter up here in verse 15. He told the woman, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is a prophecy of Jesus coming. He talked about the woman's seed. This is the only place in the Bible that talks about the seed of the woman. It's always the seed of a man. The man's the one that provides the seed in the union. But yet they call this the seed of the woman. Why? It was prophesying a virgin birth and that the seed that came forth from this woman was going to bruise his head. Oh, Kenneth Copeland said, we're going to stomp your head. Amen. <laughs> That's the way he puts it. So it prophesied the Savior. You see, God was working immediately to straighten things out. He didn't just run man off. He did this to provide redemption. He didn't want this man living in a sinful body all of his life. He didn't want him living forever. He wanted that man to experience physical death so that he could put down this corruptible and take up incorruption. And then in the fourth chapter, we see where a Abel and Cain came together and offered sacrifices unto God. Now, if you'd turn off your religious mind and if you'd read this like it meant something, amen, read it like you hadn't read the rest of the Bible yet, okay? Forget Leviticus and Deuteronomy and a lot of these things. Where did they hear sacrifices? You don't read about it in Genesis 1, 2, 3. God didn't teach them the law and the ordinances of sacrifices before the fall because they didn't need it. God didn't prepare them from the fall. God didn't tell them how to offer sacrifices for their sins. They didn't have the book of Leviticus. This was not standard practice. Where did Cain and Abel figure out that you're supposed to offer burnt offerings? See, if you'd think a little bit, 
some of these things come out, and you'd say, I wonder where they got that from. Well, God told them. Well, how did God tell them? God was walking with them and talking with them just like he did in the garden. God was still walking with his men and talking with them. You can prove that because when Cain killed Abel, Cain was standing there and God says, where's your brother Abel? And Cain says, I don't know. Now, you put yourself in his position. If Jerry had just done something and all of a sudden he's sitting here right in the very act, amen, with the blood dripping off of his hands. And the Lord comes down in an audible voice and says, Jerry, what have you done? I don't know, Lord. Just acts like it was an everyday occurrence talking to him. You know, doesn't get shook or anything by an audible voice out of heaven coming. Brothers and sisters, the reason it didn't shake him that an audible voice came unto him because the Lord walked with him and talked with him. God was still walking and talking with them. You see, it wasn't exactly the picture that we've got that God couldn't abide him and he just had to completely separate himself from this sinful man. He couldn't even come close to him because he was so holy and man was so sinful. Now, I'm not diminishing the holiness of God and I'm not condoning the sinfulness of man, but I'm saying God and his love was still trying to bridge the gap. He was not imputing their sins unto them like what they deserved. God was still fellowshipping with this man. And you can read down here in the 16th verse, it says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. How could Cain leave something that he didn't have? Cain had the presence of the Lord. A murderer, God walked and talked with this murderer, and God did not expel Cain from his presence. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. God did not withdraw from man and quit walking and talking with them. God instituted with Adam that he walked and talked with him in the garden. God still walked and talked with him after sin. God still walked and talked with his children. That's how they knew about sacrifices. God walked and talked with the murderer after he committed it, and God didn't drive Cain out. Cain left God. Cain couldn't abide the presence of God. And God always wanted to walk and talk with man. And you find that when God began to once again really inject himself back into humanity in the th days of Moses, that God had Moses sanctify the people, they came together and God appeared and spoke to them in an audible voice and started speaking to them. Once again, the presence of God came down among sinful man, began to fellowship with him, and communicate with man verbally, amen, in an audible voice, just like in the Garden of Eden. And you know what happened? God was intended to communicate with man that way from then on. That was his people. And man came together, and they stopped God right in the middle of what he was saying, and they cried out to Moses, Moses! You don't let God speak to us anymore unless we die. We're so sinful, we can't bear it. They said, you talk to God and get what he says and you come tell us. And Moses told the Lord, and the Lord says, it's good what they've said. He says, I'll not talk to man any longer. Man's choice was to withdraw from God. Brothers and sisters, God did not treat us the way many of us have been taught. That's a different, isn't it? God has always longed to walk and talk with his man. But because of sin, man has not been able to enter into it. Just like Adam. Adam ran from God, and God had to go seek him out. God has always been seeking us out. We think we're the ones that approached unto God. You didn't find God. You're the one that was lost. God found you, amen. God's always been seeking us out. And brothers and sisters, the law, as I said, was a temporary measure. The Bible makes it clear. And again, I wish I had time just to deal with the law. God never wanted to institute the law. The reason he waited until the time of Moses is because he didn't want to impute sin unto man. But man was just running rampant in sin. 
And although God wasn't judging it, sin still is deadly because sin opens up a door to the devil and whosoever you submit yourself unto, his servants you are. Man was being completely destroyed and if God hadn't restrained that sin, the covenant never would have been able to made, be made. Jesus never would have had the prophecies released and he never would have been able to come. Man would have been so hardened by sin that they couldn't have received. There wouldn't have been a virgin to come through. So God had to place a restraint on sin, and the Bible makes it clear it was a temporary measure. And the law is not made for a righteous man. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says that. It says many people are desiring to be teachers of the law. Same thing today. Many people are willing to get up and condemn you and beat you down and make you aware of all your sinfulness, and the Bible says they don't understand what they say nor what they affirm. But we know this, that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Even in this covenant, there is a proper use of the law. Knowing this, this is the way you use it lawfully, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, for the disobedient, for whoremongers, adulterers, murderers, man-stealers, and all these kind of things. Who's righteous? I'm not talking about you through your own works. That's talking about I've become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The law is not made for a saved person. It's made for a person outside the covenant. You don't use the law on a believer to say, if you don't start paying your tithes, God's going to judge you. The wrath of God's falling on you. Brothers and sisters, you may get a 10%, but you're going to put that person under condemnation and it'll affect them in many other areas. You'll bring them under bondage, make them sin conscious, and they may get to toe in the mark for a while, but they'll fall short somewhere, and when they do, all the condemnation, wrath's going to fall in on them, and they'll be wiped out. You don't use the law for that. The way you motivate people to give under the new covenant is love, not wrath. Amen? But there is a purpose for the law, and that is if you get a lost person that has compared himself among himself and that has deadened himself to sin, and you can sear your conscience things like this, if you get deadened to sin, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm a self-made man. I'm pretty good. All I need is a little boost. Amen? I think I might make it. I've lived a good life. I've had people say, well, I don't want to go to church with those hypocrites. I'm better than they are. And that's true in a lot of cases. There was a man down there in New Mexico that the Methodist preacher just hounded him and hounded him and hounded him to come to church. And this guy was a good man. He came to our Bible studies and stuff. He just wasn't religious. He didn't want to go down there and get in a social club where he had to buy a new suit and wear a certain kind of clothes. He just wanted to be himself. He didn't want to go through that religious junk. And his Methodist preacher kept bothering him and says, why don't you come to church? And, he, and finally this guy, he held off for months. And finally he says, look, I don't want to lower myself to your standards. <laughs> and he was speaking the truth. He was better off than any of those people in that church. You know, and people talk about the hypocrites down there. Well, he may have been better than others, but you see, it's not, God's not going to let you in according to your works. It's according to your confession and whether you've accepted Jesus as Lord or not. And a man like this who is deceived and thinking, I'm better than these people, that's the kind of person you use the law. He may be better than some people, but you can put God's perfect standard out there and you can begin to whittle him down to size with the law and tell him, look, brother, this is what you deserve. You may be better than I am, but look what you deserve. And you can use the law on him and you can make that man hopeless so that he throws himself on the mercy of God. But once he comes to the Lord Jesus, you better withdraw the law from him or you're going to kill the life of God because the Bible calls the Old Testament law a ministration of death and the New Testament law the ministration of life. They are diametrically opposed. They do not match. You cannot live under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant at the same time. So I've said all that to build up to how does God now view sin? How does God look at sin in the life of a believer? 
I had a preacher that used to preach on sin, and I mean, he'd get up on, he was a short guy like Kevin over here. He'd get up on top of these pulpits, and he'd grab the mic, I mean, he'd stand on this part right here, and he'd grab the microphone right here and reach over the side, God hates sin, sin's got to be judged, beat on the pulpit, break the glass, they had to replace the glass and stuff. And I mean, he'd get red in the face, screaming and hollering, sin's got to be judged. God won't tolerate sin. Man, I had that pounded into me. But what he was missing is, sin has been judged in the flesh of the Lord Jesus. I am not bearing punishment for my sin. Now, that sounds good. And did you know the average person feels like they've got to do penance? Did you know I ministered to a lady in Omaha and this was through a gift of the Spirit that there was a woman there grieving over a husband that had died. And I said, you have grieved for a long period of time. So they came forward, and as I laid hands on her, God got to showing me that she felt like she hadn't loved her husband the way that she should, and like she was a failure. She did not show love. She was selfish. And because of it, after he died, she saw that. She came under condemnation that she had suffered poverty. She had suffered sickness. She had suffered loneliness. She had suffered all kinds of trauma in her life. She knew God could answer it, but she hadn't really reached out and believed God for the help because she felt like she was doing penance. She felt like she deserved it. Look at the way she had treated her husband. And did you know, as I told her those things, that woman just screamed. And I mean, all this demonic stuff came out of her and she got set free, brothers and sisters. And did you know there are many of us that you are doing penance? You may not look at it that way, but a sickness comes at you. And you've done something wrong. You got mad at somebody. The devil comes knocking on your door with sickness, and you open the door up and you say, I knew you'd be here. I know I deserve this. I knew it was coming. I knew I had it coming. You ask the devil to come in, sit down, prop his feet up, and say, make yourself at home. I know I deserve it, amen. And you go to accepting it. Now, you may not put it in those terms, but there are many of us that we allow things in our life that if you truly understood that you are totally cleansed and purged of sin, it has no effect in your life, you wouldn't allow the devil to dominate you. If you knew your total right standing with God, brother and sister, you'd get up and shake yourself and you'd get rid of that sickness. But you don't feel able to enter into that kind of relationship and lay hold of that kind of power of God because although you believe with your head you're forgiven, it hasn't become a reality in your heart that you are totally cleansed, purged 100% from sin. Sin has no dominion over you. You are not stained by sin. I was always taught, and use this example, that sin, your life is like a two-before and sin are like nails driven in that two-before. When you get saved, God pulls the nails takes the sin out, but you're still scarred by it. You have to bear the burdens, you unworthy thing. <laughs> but that's not true. When God saved you, he took the two before with the, sin, with the nails in it and threw the thing away, amen, gave you a brand new one. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Praise Jesus. And you've got to realize that when you got born again, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things. A-L-L. -L, all means everything. That means there aren't any more things than all things. All things are become new. When you got born again, that's not talking about your physical body. Your physical body isn't saved. Are you aware of that? Brother, I thought I saved. <laughs> Did you know your soul isn't saved? 
Oh, now, brother, I came to see a soul saved. I believe he that winneth souls is wise. That's an old covenant scripture. Did you know it? Brother, under the new covenant, your spirit's a part of you gets born again. There's a difference between spirit and soul. I hadn't got time to go into that. Get a tape series entitled Spirit, Soul, and Body, part one and two. Amen. Your spirit's the part that gets saved and becomes new. Your soul is not saved. Your body is not saved. They have been purchased, but they are not redeemed. You go buy food at the grocery store, they give you trading stamps. You purchased them, but you don't have the thing that you really got them for yet. You have to go down to the redemption center and redeem them and take home the present that you want. God purchased our body and our soul. The atonement has been made, but it has not been redeemed. That's according to Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. And it shows you exactly in those exact terms. We, are wait, we have the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Talking about your soul and your body. And this is the whole conflict in the Christian life. You in your spirit, man, are perfect, righteous, and holy. You're as saved as you'll ever get. Your spirit's not going to be changed. It's not going to be improved upon. Your spirit isn't growing up. Your spirit's complete. The part of you that's growing in faith, people talk about developing your faith, it's your soulish and your body, man, that's developing in faith. There is a growth in faith. There is growing in faith. There is varying levels of faith that's released, but every man has been dealt the measure of faith according to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. So it's your spirit, man, that's changed. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24 says, put on the new man. What part is new? Old things pass away, all things become new. Your spirit. Put on your new man. Your spirit man is what he's talking about, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Your spirit is righteous and it is truly holy. And your spirit is the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That's talking about salvation. If you don't have the spirit of Christ, you are not his. You've got to have the spirit of Christ. And I'll throw something else. I'm going to have to say this is andeology. I believe it. I believe I can verify it from the Scripture, okay? I believe if you give me time, I can verify it. I don't have time to verify it. I've had some people call me a cult and say that I was just like Jim Jones' national ministers because of this very thing. It's what they got upset over. Don't you get upset if you love me anyway, amen. I'm just going to throw this out. But I believe there's a difference between the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God. I believe that the Spirit of Christ is your born-again man. The Spirit of God is the Holy Ghost. When you get born again, you receive the Spirit of Christ. At baptism of the Holy Ghost, you receive the Holy Ghost. Amen? There's a lot of scriptures to verify that. If you don't believe that way, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says you've got to be baptized in the Holy Ghost or you're none of His. But that's not what it's saying. It says you have, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. That's talking about salvation. The point I'm saying is, at salvation, you receive the Spirit of Christ. Galatians 4, 4. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit of His Son has entered into me, and my Spirit is His Spirit. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 says that. Now, if you be Christ, possessive, apostrophe S, if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Verse 16 shows you that Christ is Abraham's seed. So if you belong to Christ, then are you Christ? Well, I'll blow somebody's religious mind, amen. People have trouble understanding that because they look in the mirror and say, you mean this is Jesus? 
No, this isn't Jesus. This physical body doesn't have nothing to do with Jesus right now, amen. It's just a house that he can walk around in. My soulish man that still gets polluted with thoughts and makes bad mistakes and does things, that's not Jesus. But there's a part on the inside of me right here in your belly, amen. That's what the Bible says. Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Some of you look like you got more of the spirit than others, but that's not true, amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. We've all been given the measure, amen? <laughs> but right here is where your spirit is, and your spirit is righteous and truly holy. Your spirit is the spirit of Christ. It is identical to Jesus. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but the Christ liveth in me. Christ liveth in me. He says, it's me, but then again, it's not me. It's Christ living in me. In the life that I now live, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, we're different right here. In the spirit, man, we are righteous and truly holy. And this righteousness that's in your spirit, man, is not affected, it is not stained, it is not defiled by any sin that you commit. Now, I can verify that in a minute, but first of all, let me say this. That, that God is a spirit. John chapter 4, verse 24 says that. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God's a spirit. Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. You may look at me, and you may not like the, some of the things I do. You may not like some of my imperfections, but God does not look on that. God looks in my spirit man, and my spirit man is the spirit of Christ. It is righteous, and it is truly holy. As Jesus is... So am I in this world, 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. In this world, not so am I going to be. Right now, I am as Jesus is. That's talking about the spirit man. Praise God. Boy, that's powerful. And God's a spirit. God looks on my spirit, and if I worship him, I must worship him in spirit and truth. That means when I come before God and pray, he's not dealing with me according to my physical man, according to my soulish man, according to the part of me that sins and falls short. He's looking on my spirit man, and my spirit man is absolved of sin. There is no sin in my spirit man. It is righteous and truly holy. It does not have any ounce of sin. It has not been contaminated by sin. If you want to get technical, it's the same spirit that indwelt the Lord Jesus Christ that's already been to hell, paid for sin, and resurrected. The debt's already paid. You can't be put in double jeopardy. Amen. You cannot be judged a second time for that sin. Now, see, that rubs the natural man the wrong way because we have this built into us what we call a conscience, the knowledge of good and evil. Guess where that came from? Came from that tree we weren't supposed to eat of in the first place. And you know, we've got to renew ourselves. The Bible talks about in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, purging yourself from an evil conscience. Your conscience, until you purge it by the word of God, brothers and sisters, is going to defile you. It's going to condemn you and make you feel you unworthy thing. It's going to make you feel that when you sin, you have to do penance. Now, you may not do penance in the way that some people do, but you do penance some way or another, unless you've understood the principles that we're talking about. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to suffer for your wrongs. You don't have to get what you deserve. Praise God we don't, or we'd all go to hell. You don't have to get what you deserve because your spirit man is righteous and holy. God looks on that, and that's the part that he said that you will approach him in if you approach unto him. It's through your spirit man. It is righteous and truly holy, and it is not stained by sin when you sin. Now, I can prove that from a number of things. Let's look over here in Hebrews chapter 10. 
And if you haven't understood Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, it's saying exactly what we've been talking about in verse 1 and verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says that if the old covenant could have been perfect, which it wasn't, if it could have been perfect, then the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sin. The word conscience means awareness. They would not even have been aware of sin in their relationship with God. But the old covenant wasn't perfect. But the new covenant is perfect. It says that right here in the 10th chapter of Hebrews 2. So, if that was a principle that would have been true if the old covenant was perfect, now that the new covenant is perfect, you can say that we do not or we should not have any conscience of sin, awareness of sin. Hebrews chapter 9 says, right down here I'll have to look up the verse, It says that he will purge your conscience from dead works to serve. Where is that? Okay, it's on this other page. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The Bible says Jesus would purge your conscience. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2 shows you that if that conscience is purged, you should have no more conscience of sin. Now that right there, brothers and sisters, will change your life if you could understand that, if you can get revelation knowledge of it. I was brought up, and the place I was brought up in, they always prayed, you know, God, we're so unworthy. That's a lie in the first place. You aren't unworthy. And then they ended every prayer with, forgive us our many sins for Jesus' sake, if it be thy will. Amen. They always prayed, forgive me my many sins, at the end of the prayer. If you had sinned, you should have got rid of that stuff at the first of the prayer in the first place. And then they always prayed, forgive me my many sins. I was told that I had sin whether I knew I had sin or not. And on and on it goes. They just were sin conscious, unworthy conscious. The Bible says you should have no more conscience of sin through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I tell you, I wished I had about a week to minister on this one subject because you could deal with that one truth right there. No more conscience of sin. I encourage you to get a tape, meditate these things, brothers and sisters, and let this soak down in your heart or you're going to miss what's really going forth. It'll change your life. In Hebrews chapter 10, it's talking about the covenant that Jesus made. And it says that Jesus took away the first to establish the second. Talking about he took away the first covenant in verse 9. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. He took away that first covenant of law so that he could establish the second. There is a difference. This old covenant law has been superseded. In verse 10 it says, By the which will, or by the which covenant, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Nazarenes preach that you reach sanctification. It's an experience that you have where you reach sinless perfection. It's impossible for you to sin. Brother and sisters, that's just not true. Sanctification is something that happens at salvation through the atonement of Jesus, not through your works and holiness. See, they say, when I do this and this and this, I reach a place where I can't sin. No, you couldn't get sanctified by your own efforts for anything. Through the atonement of Jesus, you get sanctified, and it happens at salvation. Sanctification doesn't mean anything weird or spooky. It means set apart. I got set apart from my sin through the offering of Jesus, and it says that it, he, that one offering did it once for all. And if you'll take it in context, verses 1 and 2 are talking about that under the old covenant, sacrifices had to be made year after year after year because it was an imperfect covenant. 
But under the new covenant, through the one offering of Jesus, one offering sanctified us forever. You don't have to have atonements made for your sin over and over and over. And then you read on down to verse 14, verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 10 says when you get born again through the atonement of Jesus, you're sanctified. Verse 14 says if you've been sanctified, you've been perfected forever. What's that talking about, your physical body? No, my physical body isn't perfected yet. My soul's not perfected. But the saved part of me, my spirit man, is perfected forever. One offering perfected my spirit forever. It is not being stained or affected by sin. If it was, brothers and sisters, there would be no recourse the second time. Look in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. If you were to fall away, if that spirit man ever got contaminated, it's impossible, brothers and sisters, to be renewed again under repentance. You can't do it. That spirit man has been perfected forever. Now, this opens up a whole new can of worms. <laughs> Some of you are saying, well, now, you've got a Baptist background. You believe once saved, always saved. No, I don't. But I don't believe in saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost either. If I step on your religion tonight, I'm not trying to be mean or hurtful to you. I'm sharing the truth. And if you can't back what you believe up with the truth, you better switch to what the Bible says. Amen. Amen. You do not... I'm going to try and get into this. And again, I could spend the entire time ministering on this, so I'm going to have to skip through it. If you don't understand this, get a tape entitled Security of the Believer. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Praise God. But I'm going to answer this thousand-year-old debate about are you saved, lost, whatever. There's a partial truth on both sides, and the truth is neither one. Many people teach that you get saved and lost and saved and lost. If you sin, do something wrong, you lose your salvation, you backslide, and you've got to pray through. Brothers and sisters, if that is your impression, I'm saying this in love, but you are an up-and-down, in-and-out, mountaintop valley Christian at the very best. You can't live a life like that. But well, why not? Because you're going to sin. And when you sin, you're going to hit rock bottom and you're going to lose your salvation and have to start over from square one. You can't live a life like that. Well, brother, I don't do it all the time. Well, you're making mistakes all the time. And again, I go back to what are you considering sin? If you're looking at the big sins as being the ones that make you lose your salvation, God doesn't look at it that way. Sin, sin. If you keep the whole law and offend in one point, you become guilty of all. God looks at it as sin, as being sin. There's a man in Colorado Springs that teaches if you drive 56 miles an hour and have a wreck, and if you were to die in that wreck, you'd go to hell because you broke the law of the land and didn't have time to confess it. And everybody says, oh, brother, that's a little strict. Well, if you're going to believe that sin makes you lose your salvation and that you've got to repent and get back in the grace of God, then brothers and sisters, sin is sin. That's, gonna be, that's true. You, where are you going to draw the line? Well, I'm going to draw it around this sin, amen. This one over here, these on this side are bad enough to do that, but these aren't bad enough. 
God doesn't look at it that way. God doesn't look at sin that way. Brother and sister, you go 56 miles an hour and have a wreck and die, you're going to go to hell if you believe that you can lose your salvation because of sin. You can't lose your salvation because of sin. Your sin has been atoned for past, present, and future tense sin. That's what it says right here. By the one offering, you've been perfected forever. Now, if your sins were only forgiven up until the time you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord, and if you had to keep everyone confessed, what happened if you forgot one? I mean, you go to hell because you forgot one? Oh, well, I believe God's going to grade on a curve. He'll let things like that go. No? <laughs> well, I believe you've got to get them confessed when they happen and, and that the blood's got to be applied to them. Well, what are you going to do with these scriptures that you were perfected forever? One offering. Brother, he's not dying for it. He's not applying any blood. There's no ministry in heaven that Jesus is sprinkling any blood. He did it one time, praise God. He perfected you and atoned for sins forever. And some people say, how can God forgive my sin before it happened? Well, you better hope he can forgive your sins before it happened. Because Jesus died nearly 2,000 years ago and you hadn't done it yet. Amen? If Jesus can't forgive future tense sins, you hadn't got a chance of getting saved. Amen. God forgave sins, past, present, and future, and sin doesn't enter into your relationship with God. God doesn't break fellowship with you because of sin. If he did, which ones are going to break it over? He wouldn't have anybody to fellowship with. God does not break fellowship with you because of sin. But on the other hand, you see, this is the problem is the Baptists and, and other people that, it, that preach that once you get saved, you can stay saved, and they preach security of the believer. They've seen the truth that sin doesn't cause you to lose your salvation. If it does, which one would? They've seen a partial truth. But what they've missed is that although sin cannot make you lose your salvation, God gave you a free will. God didn't force you to get saved. God does not force you to stay saved. And although you can't lose salvation, you have the right and the privilege to renounce it if you want to. And now, if you will understand Scripture, you can see many Scriptures where he says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Let's look over here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 at this Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, The scripture says in verse 11, It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Well, many people preach that this denying can be done. Well, if you didn't, if you didn't live for God, if you smoked, you denied God, you denied your salvation. They preach that sin and denying God are equal. But that's not true. The very next part, the very next verse says, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Brothers and sisters, there is plenty of allowance in the gospel for a person making mistakes and falling short and coming, you know, and receiving their cleansing and all these kind of things. Denying means more than falling short, missing the mark, making a mistake. Denying is talking about an out-and-out -out rejection of the Lord. It's talking about a person who becomes reprobate. I'll explain that in a minute. Let's look back over here in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, there's another scripture about losing or renouncing your salvation. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says in verse 26, 
For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Now that scripture right there just says if you sin willfully, there's a judgment, and this judgment is going to devour the adversaries. Many people take this scripture to say every time you sin, brother, you're lost and you've got to pray through. Well, Hebrews chapter 6 shows you that if you do become lost, it's impossible to ever get saved again. If you believe that you lose your salvation because of sin, then brothers and sisters, you're damned and there is no such thing as repentance because that would put Jesus to an open shame. Crucify him afresh. It cannot be done. It is possible to renounce salvation and become lost, but once that happens, it's impossible to be born again. You can't be born again again. Amen. It's a one-time deal. Now, people that say that this sin willfully, if you commit any sin willfully that you renounce your salvation... And brothers and sisters, that means that every last one of us have lost our salvation since we've been born again. And you know the witness of the Spirit in yourself better than that, that you have not lost your standing with God because you've committed sin. The emphasis is on the willful part, which is an attitude of your will, a rejection. And I can verify that if you'll keep reading. If you'll take these things in context, God's Word will explain itself. Did you know it? problem is we read one scripture and say, I knew it, that's exactly what I believed, and that verifies it. Instead of believing something and going to the Word of God trying to prove it, you ought to believe the Word of God and go there to get what you believe. Amen? So it goes on down to say in verse 28, He that despised Moses' law. Now right here it's using the word despised. There's some of us that have sinned that haven't despised God. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy? And he begins to talk about the person who did what it says in verse 26, who sinned willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. How much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? Now, brothers and sisters, just because you've committed a sin does not mean that you have trodden underfoot the Son of God. That's a pretty strong statement. Amen? and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. Now, that's strong. I've committed sin. I've gotten mad at people when I shouldn't have gotten mad. That's sin. That's missing the mark. But I didn't count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. I didn't turn around and start, you know, I can't even say it to this day, but I'm not going to say those kind of things. I'm not going to say it for your benefit even, but you can imagine. I am not going to sit here and blaspheme the blood of the covenant. I love the Lord, and I've fallen short, and I've sinned, but, and it's been willful. Sometimes the Lord said, you shouldn't get mad. And I said, I just want to get mad, amen, and I did it. But I didn't count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. It wasn't a rejection of God. It was because of my weakness in my flesh, because I hadn't renewed myself, lots of other things, amen. And then it goes on to say, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. You look the word despite up in the dictionary. The word despite means intent to destroy, hatred, contempt, rebellion. Boy, despite is a very strong word that is used to show complete abhorrence for something. In other words, total rejection. You could be angry with somebody. You could lose your temper at your husband or at your wife and not do despite unto them. To be doing despite unto somebody, you would have to willfully, I mean, turn from them, hate everything about them with a passion, totally, totally reject that person. And so this instance, when it goes on and explains what it's talking about sinning willfully, it's talking about a rejection. That rejection could manifest itself through a sin. Sin might be involved, but it's not the sin that sends you to hell. If it was, which sin does it?
They're all sins. And brothers, if I really believe that if you ever commit a sin that you lost your salvation, I'd get you saved, knocked you in the head, and send you to heaven so you couldn't sin. Amen? I might go to hell, but I'd sure get a lot of people into heaven, right? That's the only way you're going to live free. He says over there in 1 John, speaking to believers in verse 8, he says, if we say that we sin not, we are a liar, and the truth isn't in us. He's talking to believers. Brothers and sisters, you commit sin. You fall short. That's what sin is, missing the mark. There are sins of commission and sins of omission, things that you've done wrong, things that you haven't done that you should have done. We've all sinned, and we still, even after we're born again, are capable of sinning, but, praise God, that sin doesn't send me to hell. But sin is deadly, still. Some people may think, brother, you're advocating sin. I'm not advocating sin because sin still has a twofold effect. It broke relationship with God. No longer will it break relationship with God because Jesus bore my broken fellowship. Jesus bore the punishment for me. I couldn't earn my way back into fellowship. My relationship with God is 100% restored. God doesn't see me in sin. God doesn't see sin in me. God does not impute sin unto me, amen. I'm free. But sin still will put me in bondage to the devil if I do it. Sin opens up a door to the devil. James chapter 3, verse 16 says, Where envy and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. Through envy and strife, you open up the door to the devil, and you just say, Come get me. Amen? Sin's deadly. A person who lives in sin will experience broken fellowship with God. We've been told it's because God turns away from you and says, I can't fellowship with you. Well, if that's true, brothers and sisters, what's going to get him back in fellowship with you? The only thing that ever got you in fellowship in the first place was the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus isn't going to suffer for you a second time, and the atonement's not going to be placed to your account a second time. You are sanctified and perfected forever. God doesn't withdraw from you because of sin. There is broken fellowship, but it's because you turned your back on him. In God, there is no sin. And a person who lives in sin had to get out of walking with the Lord. It's us that turned away from the Lord, and you will experience broken fellowship, but it's not God that broke the fellowship, it was you. The depression that you experience isn't God putting depression on you saying, boy, you better get back in line. The depression is because you aren't keeping your mind stayed on Jesus. You got it on other things that minister death. It's a part of Satan's system. Some people may say, well, what's the difference? You still get in trouble if you sin. Well, the difference is we are going to sin. You will fall short. And if you don't understand the truth we've talked about, if you think God is holding those sins against you, it's going to break your fellowship with God. You're going to come under condemnation, and while you're on your knees doing penance, Satan's going to hit you one of these days and kill you, and you're going to allow it because you deserved it, and because of this and because of that. Brothers and sisters, the truth is, I don't deserve it. I don't care if I have sinned, because Jesus set me free from that sin. Now, I may have opened up a door to the devil. I'm not saying sin doesn't have to be dealt with. Sin does have to be forsaken. It has to be confessed, and it has to be repented of. But why? So God can save you? So that you can go to heaven? No, you've been perfected forever to get the devil off your case, amen? You gave him legal right into your life through sin, and you better turn from that sin and confess it to shut the door on the devil and say, Satan, I will not allow you in here. Jesus has purged me, and I'm walking in this atonement, amen? amen. Y'all see that? Man, I hate sin. I am not advocating sin, but I'm saying God is not the one that's judging me for my sin. If he was, that's just like taking Jesus down from the cross and saying, look, what you did isn't enough. It's got to be you plus this boy's got to pay for it too. Praise God I'm not having to pay for what I did. I can't pay for what I did. I can't pay for what I'm going to do. 
Jesus has paid for it. And brothers and sisters, in God's sight, I am righteous and truly holy, and that doesn't change. But if I live in sin, I'm opening up a door to the devil. The devil will come in, and you can't serve two masters at one time. You can't be over here enjoying the things of God and enjoying the things of the devil at the same time. If you're going to choose to live in sin, you're going to start turning your back on the things of God. You're going to become carnally minded. You're going to wall yourself out like it says right Wall yourself off like it says right here in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Or he That's Hebrews chapter 3. You'll get hardened through the sin that comes into your life and God will start convicting you and drawing you back unto himself and you'll harden yourself and Satan will do everything within his power to bring you to a place of rejection, willful dis despite under the spirit of grace. And brothers and sisters, your salvation is not secure if you plan on living in sin, but not because of the sin. The sin is just a way that Satan comes at you. It's the willful rejection that would send you to hell, not your sin. If sin did it, which sin would do it? Y'all see that? I'm not advocating sin, and a person who lives in sin cannot be sure that they're going to maintain their salvation. If you can't resist your sin, what makes you think that you're going to be able to resist the temptation when somebody puts a gun to your head and says, renounce Jesus or I'll kill you? You won't have the power to do it, brothers and sisters, if you're out living in sin. There is such a thing as losing salvation, but it's not really losing it, it's rejecting it. Amen? Now, there's a lot more that needs to be said about that. I could minister on this for a long time. I've just briefly hit it. You take these things and use it as a springboard. I've got to answer some other things lest somebody come under condemnation. I always have people come up to me and say, Brother, I've done what you've talked about. I willfully rejected God. And yet I feel like I'm saved. Are you saying I'm lost? Hebrews chapter 6 puts qualifications on this. It is impossible for those. It gives you a specific those. Those who were once enlightened have partaken of the heavenly gift or made a partaker of the heavenly gift, tasted the good word of God and the power of the world to come. If they shall fall away, it's impossible to renew them under repentance. In other words, there are qualifications on a Christian who can do this. A baby Christian can't commit this. If my son, four years old, was to get mad at me and say, I renounce you, you are not my daddy, I sever ties with you, you'll have no influence over me, I'm on my own. He may mean it, and he may be really upset, but did you know I won't adhere to that, and the law won't adhere to that, because he's not of age, he doesn't understand what he's doing. But if, that, if he grows up to be 30 years old and was to decide to do that, the law would make me adhere to that. He has a will. And he can sever legal ties with me. Although he was born of me, he can sever his legal ties, and he, in that sense, could cease to be my son. An immature Christian can't do this. There are people that, out of frustration because they didn't know the truth, they hadn't tasted the good word of God, the powers of the world to come. You meditate on those qualifications. I hadn't got time to go into them. But it's talking about a mature Christian, one that's operated in the gifts of the Holy Ghost and seen the power of the world to come operate in their life. A person who's walked with God, brothers and sisters, can, is on dangerous ground if they get out of walking with God. Now, I'm not preaching that your salvation's insecure and you have to be on a fence wondering, am I going to make it? Second Peter chapter 1 shows you that if you do these things, you will be secure. An entrance will be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom, and you will never fall. If you are falling after faith, wisdom, knowledge, brotherly love, if you are doing these things, you will never fall. 
I am not fearful about my salvation. I have not had a single day worrying about, am I going to make it? Because I've committed myself to God, and I'm walking in it. But brothers and sisters, if I was to say, well, I'm so secure, praise God, I think I'm going to go out and just commit adultery. God will forgive me. Boy, I tell you what, you broke your shield down, and that doesn't mean the adultery will not send you to hell. But brothers and sisters, you have put your shield down you have ceased to walk after God, and I guarantee you Satan is going to take the condemnation that comes into your life, the hardness. He's going to draw you onto a place of rejection if he can, and you are no longer secure. Now, that didn't mean you lost your salvation, but you're putting yourself in the enemy's camp. And I would repent from that and get back to where you're supposed to be and say, Satan, I will not give you the right to harden me through the deceitfulness of sin. I withdraw, and I'd get back to where you're keeping your mind stayed on the Lord. But once you're seeking God, I'm not fearful about losing my salvation. Even when I sin, I'm not fearful about it because that sin is not willful in the sense that I am doing despite under the Spirit of grace. Y'all see that? All right, somebody else may say, but brother, I believe I was operating in the Word enough that for me, I knew what I was doing. Well, the Bible, right here in Hebrews, it's talking about being reprobate. You can read it over there. I believe it's in, uh, there it is, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. We are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And taken in context, see, he's been talking about sinning willfully, doing despite under the spirit of grace. He was talking about these things, and he balances it out by saying, but look, we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. He called this condition of doing despite under the spirit of grace as, do, as, per, as uh, perdition. And you can follow this thing on through Scripture. Uh, Judas was called the son of perdition. Judas is an example of a person who willfully did despite under the spirit of grace. Also, you can look in the book of Romans chapter 1, and in Romans chapter 1, it talks about being reprobate, which is the same condition. Let's look over here in Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, it's talking about people to whom God revealed his righteous nature, and yet they took the revealed truth and corrupted it into a lie. They took the knowledge about there being a God, and instead of worshiping the, tr worshiping the true and living God, they, they made idols and began to worship these things that can't move. They corrupted the knowledge of God. They, and it goes on to say... Um, In verse 25, they changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. That's talking about lesbianism. And verse 27 says, And likewise also the man, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one towards another. That's homosexuality. Man with man, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now this is talking about people who took the knowledge God gave every man in verses 1 through 20. I mean, verses 18 through 20. If you've ever wondered about the heathen in the darkest part of Africa, the answer is Romans 1, 18 through 20. Every man has had even the eternal power and Godhead revealed to him. The Trinity has been revealed to every person that's breathed upon the face of the earth so that they are without excuse. But they didn't always respond right to this knowledge. 
And those who did not like to retain God in their knowledge, he gave them over to a reprobate mind. This is talking about a lost man, but it's the same principle, you see. Somebody received something from God, and when they rejected it, when they said, God, I don't even want to hear it anymore. I don't, I get off my case. Amen. Leave me alone. When they rejected it, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And the term reprobate is also used of a believer who has done what Hebrews chapter 6 is talking about. Paul talked about it. He says, you should know that we are not reprobate. And so it's talking about a believer. So this same principle holds true. And when a person is reprobate, the Bible says God gave them over under their own mind. They did not like to retain God in their mind, so God gave them over. It's a picture of just like, you know, Jesus said, no man can come unto the Father except the Spirit draws him. Spirit of God is moving through the earth, convicting of sin. John chapter 16, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will reprove of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Spirit of God convicts of sin. And a person who is willfully rejecting God, I don't care if it's a lost man or even a believer who for some reason or another through the deceitfulness of sin has turned his back on God and said, God, I want nothing to do with you. I'm against you. He willfully sides in with the devil and, and tries to trot underfoot the Son of God. A person who willfully will not retain the knowledge of God, God will give them over to a reprobate mind. He takes away the Holy Ghost. He takes away conviction. That person knows they're going to hell and could care less. They are reprobate unto every good work. They are completely given over to Satan. So the point that I make there is, if a person here wonders, but I think I must have committed that. And if you're convicted, and if you're sad and wondering your position in the Lord, you aren't reprobate. And you have not been given over to vile affection. Anybody who's wondering, have I done that? No, you hadn't done it. A born-again believer is seeking to live a holy life. You may be doing a miserable job of it because you don't know the truth, and because you've got all kinds of problems, but your desire is to live for God. And a person that would take the truth and go live in sin was never born again. Their desire was never changed. You're just as black as you can be on the inside, and you need to be born again and be converted. All this will do is set you free from sin, not free to sin. Amen? And there's a difference. Once you get born again, brothers and sisters, you are not a sinner. Sin may enter into this physical body, and that's the reason that Satan comes at us with things. That's the reason Satan still afflicts his physical body and soulless realm is because through sin we open up doors to him. We give him place in our life. But if you are walking in keeping those sins confessed, now this is the reason the Bible says to confess your sin, is not because God has to atone for it. The atonement's already been made. You've already been perfected forever. But when you confess it and forsake it, the Bible says he not only forgave, but he cleanses from all sin. That's talking about the physical and the soulish realm. When you confess it and forsake it, the anointing of God, the life that you have in your spirit, will flow through this body, and it'll rid it of the dominion of the devil. It'll get rid of sickness and disease. It'll shut the door on the devil, and he can't dominate you, amen, because you are under the anointing and the control of the Holy Ghost. Amen? So that's the reason you do need to forsake sin and confess it. But you do not become a sinner when you sin. Amen. Let me share one last scripture. I think this is last scripture, amen. My wife's always, I tell you, I'd like to have ministered on this for a good five or six nights, but I didn't have time to work up to it. Let's look in Romans chapter 6. 
Romans chapter 6 says in verse 20, For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Anybody understand what that means? When you were a servant of sin, what does that mean? Before you were born again, right? You were free from righteousness. What does free mean? Does that mean that it was impossible for you to do anything righteous? Even a lost man. You know, I don't care who they are. I've ministered to murderers. We've got people that write us from Leavenworth that are in there for killing people and all kinds of things. They did something good before they were born again. It didn't mean they never committed a righteous act, something that was in right standing with God, something that was according to God's plan and will. They were nice to their mother or to a dog or to their animal or something. Sometime or another, everybody's done something good. But the Bible says you were free from righteousness. That doesn't mean that it was incapable for you to commit righteousness, but rather righteousness was not laid to your account because you were by nature a child of the devil and all of your righteousness, it didn't say you couldn't do righteousness, but it says all of that righteousness is as filthy rags. They just cannot produce salvation in your life. So this does not mean that a lost person can't do anything good, but it means all of their good will never be applied to their account because the only way you can approach into God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be good, but you are still lost by nature. It is your nature that you are a child of the devil, and until your nature gets changed, it doesn't matter how good you act. Everybody understand that, and everybody agrees with that, right? All right. Well, in this same passage of Scripture, in verse 21, it says, What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death but now being made free from sin and become servants to God. It turns this around exactly the opposite direction. If you're going to take the terminology in verse 18 and say that while you were a sinner, you could do righteous acts, but you did not become righteous because you were by nature a sinner, then you have to, to be consistent with Scripture, say in verse 20, that now we are righteous by nature, and although you are still capable of committing sin, you do not become a sinner because your nature is righteousness no more than you became righteous when your nature was a sinner. Oh, do you all see that? Praise God. Boy, I tell you, if you see that, brothers and sisters, it's all over but the shouting, amen. The only way Satan is ever able to come into you and make you feel like, well, yes, God heals, but what makes you think he's going to heal you? It, he may say a thousand different things, but they're all related to sin. He'll point his finger at you. You aren't this. You aren't that. But when you understand that you are free from sin, did you know the Bible says that we are free from sin? It says, you then being made free from sin became the servants of righteousness. That's right here. That's that exact terminology. Free from sin. If you understand that, the devil has just got to go somewhere else because the only dominion the devil ever gained over my life was sin. I have been cleansed and purged of sin, and brothers and sisters, it will not defeat me. The only way sin can affect me, it can't affect my relationship with God because God has dealt with sin. God doesn't even behold the sin as far as our relationship goes. The only way sin affects me now is that it opens up a door to the devil, and you can't give the devil very many open doors without getting blown away. Amen. So I live a holy life. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. 
Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.